Hi, my name's Pastor Daniel. I'm so excited you're taking an opportunity to watch this sermon. We believe that anytime we open the Word of God, that we have an opportunity to be changed because the Bible is the actual live Word of our Heavenly Father. And we hope that this impacts you in a positive way. A quick word of caution, and that is that this sermon that you're about to watch is by no means uh, the church. It's not a substitute for a church. It's not a substitute for a pastor in your life. The church is not a building. The church is the body of Christ, a group of believers doing life together, worshiping and pursuing Jesus together. In no way should this be any sort of primary discipleship in your life, and in no way should this replace the pastor that somewhere God has called to shepherd you. We hope sincerely that you're part of a local church somewhere. And if you're not, I wanna encourage you to go find a local church to be part of, because for all of the ups and downs and messiness of the local church, the Bible calls it the bride of Christ. It is the hope of the world. And you need to be part of one because it'll help. If you don't know where or how to find a local church, we'd love to help. You can simply go to our website and email us at hello at resurrect.church and we'll do our best to plug you in. We appreciate your time. We hope that this supplementary discipleship impacts you in a positive way. We believe the Bible has a profound impact on us when we allow God to speak to us. Thanks. Pastor Daniel, I'm one of the lead pastors here. Uh, we just finished last week six, uh, a six-week series on humility called Antidote for Self. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to go back to the book of John. We are slowly making our way through that book. Uh, we will uh, do that for four weeks. Then we'll spend three weeks on a series about the urgency by which we've been called to follow Christ. Then uh, that'll put us into our Christmas series and uh, starting next year, uh, in January, uh, we've got four or five weeks kicking off the year. They're going to be really fun. Uh, we'll talk about that in the next week or two, about some of the stuff that's coming. Um, so, John, uh, we've been working our way through this. Um, today, we're going to hit a, a big common story that you may or may not have heard, but it's a pretty popular story. But to get through it, it's 45 verses. Uh, it's a good thing that I talk fast. We got a lot, a lot to, to get through. Now, um, there's some key things in this uh, story that I want to I touch on that we're going to get to see from Jesus in this story. Uh, it's a story only found in the book of John, uh, so the other three Gospels aren't even going to cover it. But, but there's, a, there's a real key here that I want to make sure you catch. We'll, we'll stop when we get there, but there's a key here about what it is like when you encounter Jesus. A, a, and implied and stated is that there is a, a richness a contentment, a satisfaction in knowing him and encountering him that changes everything. 
And it's unparalleled in this world. Uh, and, and we sing songs about it. Uh, and we dwell on it. We talk about it. And, and most of the New Testament ends up being about it. And, and if you miss it, uh, frankly, you miss the whole point. If you, if you miss this idea of what Jesus does as he changes us, that it, that it leads to a joy that is almost inexpressible, then, then you're missing the point. Because if there's, there's not joy, if there's not contentment, if there's not satisfaction, well, then what's left is, is very empty. It's very hollow. It's very religious, but it's not very fulfilling. And so I want you to see that, uh, and I want to make sure that we're, we're chewing on as we, we, we uh, go through the story and, and consider how the scripture speaks to us. Now, what's happened thus far in the book of John, we, we covered this as we've slowly made our way through it, uh, in John 1, John starts off really going all the way back to creation, talking a little bit about the nature of God, he spends a little bit of time talking about John the Baptist, uh, which is kind of the forerunner of Jesus, and then we get Jesus' first miracle. It's uh, the Baptist's favorite story when Jesus changes everything into alcohol. Um, it's a joke, guys. It's just a joke. He calls his disciples. He cleanses the temple the first time. Uh, and that's, that's kind of all that's to happen. You know, we're, we're still pretty early in his ministry. And then we're going to, oh, and he's met with Nicodemus, uh, a, a Jewish ruler or teacher of that time. And then we get this story uh, in John chapter 4. Now, two things that I want to make sure before I start the story that you read uh, th- this story with this lens on. I think this is important. Um, Oh, well, here's the four points. I'll give you the four points now, and then I'll, we'll, we'll cover them again at the end, but just in case I, I talk about them too fast because I tend to do that. Uh, number one, takeaway here when we finish will be this. God chases us down despite our best efforts to fight him. Number two, Jesus came to change our life now and in eternity. So it's both. Number three, a changed life is the gospel message. And number four, every follower should desire to see people experience what we get to experience. Okay, those are the four big points that we will end on or finish with as we make it our way, our way through chapter four. Now, let me, um, I, I want you to wear a, a lens when we read this story. And what I mean by that is we, we automatically, when you read any story, you hear any story, uh, you, you read it with a bias. Has anyone ever seen a movie before they read the book? Anybody? Anybody, come on, come on, all right. And, it's, and it colors how you read the book, right? Because now you got these images of all these actors, and so then when you read the character, you're like, oh, I know what they look like. No, you don't, you know what the actor looks like. You know what they look like. You read it backwards, okay? So you always do this, and we take our life experiences, and we take our own selves, because let's be honest, every time you read a hero story, you're always the hero. Come on, yes? You don't ever read the hero story, and you're like, I'm probably the villain. No, you don't, you're the hero. We're self-centered, it's what we do. Okay, do you know how many heroes I've been? I read a lot of books. <laughs> when you read the story, it's colored with, with your own uh, biases, your own history, your own self-centeredness. And, and, and what I need you to do here is read this story in chapter four today with a, a little different of a lens than I think is easy to do. See, what happens is in the translation into English, this story makes it seem like the woman, the Samaritan woman that Jesus is going to uh, speak to is dumb. Like, like, like she's, she's a little bit slow. That is not the case. In fact, you, you peel back the text. This woman is not dumb at all. She's been abused. She's suspicious and defensive. 
She, she, women had no rights. They were almost property back in this time. But even worse, she was a Samaritan woman, which we'll talk about was even lower than that. And, and even worse than that, she was ostracized in her own community because she'd had five husbands and was currently living with a man. So everything, I mean, like, this is the lowest of the lowest of the lowest on the, on the little socio, uh, societal totem pole. And when a Jewish man meets her privately out in the middle of nowhere, whoo! She is not open for conversation. She is used to being abused by men and taken advantage of by men. And so when he engages her in conversation in order to offer her the gospel, she wants none of it. And so as you read this, I want you to read this uh, character based on her past, not yours, that she is wounded and hurt and harmed and suspicious. You got it? Four of you? You got it? Okay, here we go. John, chapter 4, verses 1 through 45. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to, and I want you to underline had to, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Okay, uh, lots of things here, real quickly. Um, <laughs> Jesus had to, okay. We're about to talk about Samaria and, and Samaritans and why the Jews essentially hated them. I mean, really hated them. Um, and, and, and we're going to have multiple stories in the New Testament about Samaritans uh, where Jesus kind of pokes into some of uh, the, this ethnic bias and some of this hate. But when it says he had to, Jesus is traveling north. And uh, as he's traveling north from Jerusalem into Galilee, uh, this is a direct path. So to go through Samaria, uh, Samaria is just, you know, this is the shortest path. And so if you read that and you thought, yeah, you had to, that's the shortest path, you'd go, yeah, that makes sense. Except the moment you begin to study the culture and the context of the time, no one that was uh, uh, religious at all, no one that was a, a Jew of any notoriety at all, no one that was really trying to follow sort of the traditions and religion of the, that time would have gone directly through Samaria because Samaria was unclean. And Samaritans were ritually unclean. They were un ceremonially unclean. You, you didn't want anything to do with them. You didn't want to be around them. You hated them. You couldn't stand them. And so your average Jew did not go through Samaria when he was on his way. Instead, when he left, he would travel east all the way over, cross the Jordan River, then travel north, then cross all the way back across the Jordan River to get where he's going. He would add three days to his journey because they were walking. Now, man, like some people don't like Oildale, but I ain't taking a three-day detour. Amen? Well, that's, a lot of, that's a lot of time. So when it says had to, it doesn't mean had to because it was the shortest path. It doesn't mean had to because it was uh, geographically in the middle. It means had to because he had a calling and a divine appointment in Samaria that we're going to get to read about. And there are things in your life that you have to do because God has them for you. And you be sensitive to the things that God puts in your path, the people that God puts in the path, because you have opportunities that will seem very similar to what we're going to see here for the glory of God. Now, why do they hate Samaritans so much? It's complicated. Uh, 
Anyone have a mixed family? You know what I'm talking about, right? And you're like, how are you related to them? You're like, it's complicated. Like I have ex-brother-in-laws, but I don't know if they're really ex because I still like them. So are they former brother-in-laws? Are they just, I got three of them. I'm like, uh, let's just call it one. It's complicated. If we go all the way back, um, when the Hebrews get to the promised land that God gives them, there's 12 tribes, and they are worshiping God in the tabernacle, which they set up in a town called Shiloh, which is next to Mount Gerizim. And they worship there for quite some time until Solomon, the third king, builds a temple in Jerusalem. So now we've moved the worship place of God to a new place. When Solomon dies uh, and his son comes to power, 10 of the tribes refuse to recognize Solomon's son as king and they break off from the kingdom. And now we have two kingdoms, the kingdom of Israel, which is in rebellion, and the kingdom of Judah. The kingdom of Israel, um, both kingdoms, the Judah and Israel, end up being punished for idolatry and, and, and running away from God and much stronger language than that if you read the Old Testament. Um, I mean, very strong language that God uses about the way that they uh, worship idols. But, but over time, as they're conquered, what happens is there's almost none of the original uh, tribe left. There's just a remnant of those 10 tribes, and they intermarry with Gentiles, a lot of them. And that intermarriage, which God had prohibited, is looked down on disdainfully by Jews. And so, so much so that when the temple is rebuilt uh, later, Uh, Jews from Judah will not even allow Samaritans to come and help in the process of rebuilding. Like, not only can you not attend here, you can't even help us rebuild. So yeah, we need money. Yeah, we need resources. Yeah, we need volunteers, but not from you. You're mixed blood. You're a muggle. No? Okay. So they hate them. In fact, they hate them so much that in their ceremony, in their tradition of staying clean for the Sabbath, staying holy and clean, they have made everything Samaritan unclean. So if you were to come in contact with Samaritans, you become ceremonially unclean and can't participate in certain religious ceremonies. So they're dirty. We don't talk to Samaritans. We don't associate with Samaritans. We don't be around Samaria. And Jesus is taking his disciples right through the middle and he's sitting at a well outside of Sychar at the sixth hour. Now that's in and of itself pretty interesting because the sixth hour is the heat of the day. It's the hottest part of the day. So here's Jesus sitting at this well, heat of the day. His disciples go into town to get food for him. And we pick up a very interesting story in verse seven. A woman from Samaria, so a Samaritan woman, came to draw water. Again, you're reading the story, you're like, no big deal. That's a big deal. It's a big deal for a couple reasons. Number one, women don't go to the well to draw water at noon. Have you been out during a Bakersfield summer? You don't plan outdoor activities at the hottest part of the day, amen? We call those out-of-towners. Y'all don't know any better. (laughs) Women went to draw water either early in the morning or late in the evening when it cooled off. It was one of the two. There were three wells closer to Sychar than this well. You don't pick a well farther away. Listen, no one's that bougie. (laughs) Why? Because you had to carry the water. The jar that they're going to fill up with water 
holds about five gallons. You ever lugged around a five-gallon bucket of water? Not for very long. It's heavy. And that was made of plastic with a nice little handle. This is made of pottery. So a woman is not going to take this thing that's going to weigh over 40 pounds full of water and carry it for miles in the heat of the day unless she has to. Why would she have to? What would cause a woman to pick a well four wells away from town at noon to carry that water? Because she was ostracized. Because not only was she a Samaritan looked down upon by Jews, but even of her own people in her own small town, she had no friends. She was avoiding all community, going out of the heat of the day, out of all kinds of inconvenience, traveling further than she needed to to hide from community. Not that any of people nowadays in church would hide from community and go to great lengths to stay away from being engaged and vulnerable in Christian community. You guys don't know what I mean, but you probably have a friend. Right? Yeah, okay, cool. Uh, so this is the woman he's speaking to, who's at the well, coming to draw water. And Jesus looks at her, he says to her this, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So this is a logical question. It's a very logical question. Like, why are you talking to me? Again, the lens of who this woman is. Why are you talking to me? Why are you engaging me? This is the first of her deflections in which Jesus begins to attempt to engage her in a conversation to lead her to a relationship and she's gonna deflect. She will actually end up deflecting seven times in this conversation. But Jesus is relentless. Relentless. Now, not only was Jesus not supposed to be talking to her, um, Jews, proper Jewish men, weren't even supposed to be talking to women, number one let alone Samaritans, let alone a Samaritan woman. And then if we really get down to it, what her, her question is, is, and how are you going to get a drink? You don't have something to drink from. You would have to drink from my utensils, from, from, from my, wait a minute, you can't even eat with me. You can't touch anything that I've touched without becoming ceremonially unclean. And you want to drink from me? Seems logical. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, that's a teaser. You ever seen that meme? That's bait, right? That's bait. Jesus is saying, hey, there's more here, right? He's trying to, he's trying to, to engage in this conversation. He's going, hey, if you knew, if you knew who was telling you this, you would ask for living water. And the woman said to him, because she wants none of this conversation, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. So there's two deflections in here. Number one, the logical one. Uh, how do you think you're gonna get the water there, buddy? That well's pretty deep. You're gonna climb down there, scoop it up with your hands. Secondly, a little kind of a prideful one. Hey, we're Samaritans, but we're living here on Jacob's land. We're an ancestor of Jacob, right? Our lineage goes back as deep as your Jewish lineage goes, right? A little, little pushback. What is she doing? She's just deflecting. She's pushing back. She doesn't want to engage this guy in conversation. Jesus is giving her opportunities to have this conversation with him. because He's trying to invite her into this relationship for what he'll call living water. She wants none of those things. She's pushing and she's pushing. Jesus is very gentle with her. 
just like he's gentle with you and I, but he's relentless, amen? He's relentless. God chases us down despite our best efforts to fight him. I tell people this all the time. You can run, but Jesus has long legs. He will come get you. He will chase you down. He is going to chase her down in this conversation. He's going to do it gently. He can do it lovingly, but he's going to chase her down. And Jesus said to her, verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him Will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. I want you to see what Jesus is saying to this woman and understand that this is at the very crux, the core of the Christian life, what he's explaining to her here. And I, and I don't want you to miss this because if you miss this, you're going to get a distorted view of the Christian life, a distorted view of what relationship with Jesus looks like. He is not saying, hey, listen, if you'll drink this water, then, then, then your life, which sucks, her life sucks. Can we be real? You understand that, right? Like if you think you have a tough life, I mean, if you could just for a moment understand... <laughs> In the first century, what this woman lives through, you, you, you would be so great. You would live in gratitude for the rest of your life. And he's not just saying, listen, if you'll drink of this water, then yeah, your life's going to continue to suck until you finally inevitably die. But then, hey, heaven, as in like I'm selling you life insurance, right? Listen, if you'll pay into this for a little while, it's going to be terrible. But someday things will get better. That's not, that's not it. Christian, you, you're not, you're not, when you're evangelizing, when, you tell, when you're talking to people about Jesus, you're not talking about life insurance. You're not sitting around going, hey, someday this will get better. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, if you drink from regular water, you'll get thirsty again. But if you drink from this water, you will never thirst again. Not now, not later. And it will create in him who drinks it a a water that wells up into eternal life. Not wait, 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 die, now we get eternal life. No, wells up, meaning life encountering Jesus, even as a believer, is meant to be deeply satisfying, deeply content, rich with his mercies and grace, joy that overflows. If I'm not describing your life, you have a problem. You don't fully know him yet. You're not abiding in him yet. If life for you is a series of like, let me just grind through until I finally get to heaven, then you're missing it. There's more that you're not putting your hands around yet. And he's trying to give this to her. He's like, listen, you don't want water? The gift that I have is so much better than that. And she, like many of us, want none of that conversation. No thanks. She's missing it. Jesus came to change our life now and for eternity. Verse 15. The woman said to her, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Logical. Right? If, if I'm being honest, like this is probably 
the most sarcastic statement in the chapter. I mean, this is laced with sarcasm. I'm gonna give you living water that will well up inside of your eternal life. Sure, buddy. Sure. Go ahead. Give me some of that water. I'd love to not have to lug this stinking water jar all the way out here at noon every single day. That'd be great. Go for it. Don't want a set of steak knives too while you're at it. Sure. This is a fourth, fourth deflection now. Man, Jesus is gonna come for her right now. Like he is just on her. Because God chases us down despite our best efforts to fight him. Verse 16, Jesus says to her, okay, go call your husband and come here. That is not an improper thing to say in Jewish culture at all, right? He's talking to a woman. Nothing wrong with saying, hey, go, go get your husband. Let's have this conversation. Now, that's not why Jesus says it. She will not allow Jesus to engage her in a conversation that gets below surface level. You see that, right? Every time he tries to lead her into something that would be deeper than just like a casual conversation, she deflects, she deflects, she deflects, she deflects. And then just think about Jesus, okay? He loves you too much to leave you where you are. Do you understand what I'm saying? He loves you far too greatly to leave you in your own mess. Do you deserve your mess? Yes. Do I deserve my mess? Yes. Will Jesus leave us there? No. Because he loves us. The, the thing about his reckless love that we sing about is it's not reckless as if it's like not ordained. He's sovereign. He knows the end. If he chose you, he is good and faithful to complete what he started in you. That's not at risk. The only thing that was reckless about Jesus is the fact that Jesus came without regard to his own safety. Your salvation was never in doubt. Neither is hers. She's running. But he got long legs. So she will not allow him to get below the surface. He, she, she's just fighting him on it. She's fighting him on it. She's fighting him on it. She's giving him sarcastic answers. Not that any of you use sarcasm to deflect vulnerable conversations. So he's like, oh, oh, we playing. Oh, okay. Have you ever played, uh, you ever played chess? You know, when you, when the king is at risk, when you put your, you go check. Yes, some of you, you've at least watched The Queen's Gambit or something, okay. When Jesus says, go call your husband and come here, he might as well have just said, check. He's setting her up. Just give up now, lady. And the woman answers him, I have no husband. Still fighting him, still deflecting. Y'all know a lie by omission is still a lie. When you, when you have an opportunity to tell the truth, but you tell half the truth and leave the other part out. No, none of you have ever done that. You seem confused. Okay, when someone does it to you, it's still a lie, correct? Okay, good. So if that's true, then when you do it to other people, it's also still a lie. I'm sorry. <laughs> She's lying by omission. Go call your husband to come here. Oh, I don't have a husband. Checkmate. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband. For you've had five husbands. 
and the one you now have is not your husband. So what you've said is true. (sighs) Jesus has no chill at all. He's not mean. You're going to test Jesus? You're going to play play ping pong with Jesus, right? A little verbal like, oh, no, I'm not going to let you get into this conversation. Jesus is not, I mean, absolutely not. He's like, okay, you want to keep this at the surface level? Here, let me just lay out all your business. Yeah, you're right. I mean, just consider this. All of the things that you're ashamed of in your life before Christ, all the things you're ashamed of in life after Christ that you really don't want to tell the Christians about because you think that they'll be judgy. If we just listed them all on the screen today, your name and a whole list of the things that were the most sensitive for you, going to feel good? No. No, we come to church to cover things up. We don't. This is Jesus. He's just laying it out in front of her. Now, I want you to consider this, okay? Because this is actually pretty amazing. I I told you before that this story is only in the book of John. It's not in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Those are synoptic gospels. None of the three mention this story. There are two people at the well, Jesus and the woman. How'd the story get in the Bible? If you've read the Bible at all, you realize that Jesus is not one to... um, spend a lot of words explaining things to the disciples. Most of the time, he just gives them weird, mysterious parables and lets them figure it out. So who told John what happened at the well? There's only one person left. And it wasn't Jesus, it was? It was her. The Samaritan woman told John what happened. The Samaritan woman so defensive that she won't let Jesus engage her in a conversation is so changed at some point that she goes to his disciple and she just doesn't just tell him a transcript she tells him all her business that's something let's see what happens the woman said to him so he just laid her stuff out the things she's most embarrassed about the things she's most abused about the things that the reason she has no community in her, her town right now because of, he just laid those out. And her response to him, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. What? What is that? So Jesus has been very, very gentle. She refuses to engage him. So he lays out her sin. He lays out the, 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 most, the, the wounds that she has. She, he lays out the shame that she has right in front of her, engaging her into this conversation, inviting her into this conversation. And man, when he lays that out, does she go, oh, this is the son of God? Oh man, this is a prophet? Oh, I need to listen? She's like, no, run! And she... What, what is this? This is the political hot debate of their time. Whatever the political hot debate is right now, uh, Republicans or, or Democrats or foreign affairs or whatever it is, border, I mean, you name it, right? We've got some, something that we're all up in arms about. All you have to do is turn on Fox News and say so they'll be screaming about something. Or MSNBC, they'll, they'll be screaming, right? The world is ending. 
This is it right here. This is the topic. See, in, in Samaria, where the original tabernacle was, at Shiloh, next to Mount Gerizim, that is where people worshiped because they weren't allowed to go to the temple. So Jews said, no, it's the temple in Jerusalem. And Samaritans said, no, it's this place of the tabernacle at this mountain. And they're arguing. And so what does she do? He exposes her personal, vulnerable life. He lays it out. And she's like, absolutely not. Let's talk about political controversy. Have you ever been talking to someone about Jesus and you're you're sharing your soul and you're talking to them about their life and how they made it a wreck and they're like, you know, there was a church one time that really, and they they, they go into some, they're changing the subject off into something that I can't go to church because like there was this time in 1982 where they hurt my feelings or I don't like churches because they do this or I don't like Jesus because a a Christian once did this, you know, like this is what she's doing. She's going like, let me, let me drag you into this political debate. Let's get the, let's not talk about me and my life. Let's talk about anything else, please. So she drags Jesus into this political debate. Jesus is going to both answer the questions she's asking, meaning solve the debate, and not let her off the hook. I just also want you to realize she's not dumb. This is not a dumb, inarticulate person that is continuing to debate Jesus here, change the subject, move off of herself. She's very intelligent. This isn't her not getting it. She gets it. She just doesn't want it. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. So what are the two sides? Mount Gerizim for the Samaritans, Jerusalem for the Jews. Jesus is like, the hour is coming when neither of these places will be where you worship the Father. The worship, you worship what you do not know, we worship what we do know, Samaritans and Jews. For salvation is from the Jews, because Jesus is Jewish. But the hour is coming and now, is now here when true, the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth truth. So Jesus answers the question. No, it's not Mount Gerizim. It's Jerusalem. The Jews were right, but it's not going to matter because the time is coming and the time has come now when it's not going to be about the mountain for the Samaritans or the the temple for the Jews, but rather God's going to be looking for people, whether they're Samaritan or Jewish, who are willing to worship him in spirit and truth, spirit and truth. What does that mean? Spirit and truth. Let me explain, even inside of evangelical circles, even inside of Christian circles, we still have this sort of spectrum, and, and, and we, we have, there's a tension here. We, we have a really tough time getting right. Um, on one end, on the, maybe a more charismatic side, it's Jesus and, and God, and it's sort of all spiritual, and it's about emotives and feelings, and I got to feel saved and I got to feel like God's here, and I, and I do what I feel like, and I follow my heart, it's like Pocahontas or something. And it's all about feeling, because God is so spiritual, and I want to be spiritual. But, but, but I disregard the truth. And, 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 and the other end is, well, God is about truth, and, and he has scripture for us to use as a moral compass and as a, as a guide to keep us 
following him and to illuminate us and to teach us through. And, I, and he's called us with things to do and I need to obey him and, and do those things. And it doesn't really matter how I feel. In fact, I should be suspicious of anything that feels too emotional because I might get myself in trouble. And I'll just stay over here in the fact realm and I don't need to worry about the spiritual realm. And that, that's, both of these are distortions. Do you see that? Both of them have gone too far. And, and, and Jesus right off the bat is going, listen, the Father is searching for people that are going to worship him in spirit and truth because he is spirit. The woman says to him, this is a great line. Is, so he, he answers her question. He deflects the fact that she's trying to deflect, but he also answers the question, and then he draws her back to what his invitation is. And verse 25, she says this. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Okay, two things. Number one, she's essentially saying, well, I guess that's your opinion. I mean, that's what she's saying. He gives her a phenomenal answer, and she's like, well, I guess we'll find out when the Messiah comes. As in like, well, I can't take your word for it. You're a Jew. Secondly, what's interesting is the Samaritans generally did not believe in the Messiah. They didn't even know about the Messiah because in the Samaritan version of this religion, they had only adopted the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And it didn't really have a lot of alliteration or prophecy about the coming Messiah. So most Samaritans didn't believe there was a Messiah coming. They didn't even know the concept. And somehow an ostracized woman who's had five husbands not only knows about it, but knows about it in a conversation and is answering. So this is a very informed and intelligent woman, not a dumb woman. I know the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. It's her seventh deflection, by the way. She's running, she's running. She has deflected in any which way she can, and Jesus has continued to attempt to engage her in this conversation, in this invitation, in six different ways. Jesus appeals first off to her kindness when he asks her for water, and the woman responds defensively, and Jesus then appeals to her curiosity, and she responds sarcastically. He appeals to her spiritual need, and she focuses only on physical needs. He appeals to her personal interest and she responds with a half-truth. He appeals to her conscience and she raises a controversial issue. He appeals to her will and then the woman tries to de delay any decision by saying, well, you know, the Messiah is gonna come someday. Verse 26. Yeah, the Messiah is gonna come someday and then I guess we'll know. Jesus says to her, Jesus said to her, verse 26, I who speak to you am he. Mufasa. <laughs> the way this is written in Greek, it would start, the sentence would start this way, I am. Sound familiar? I am the I am. I am. Jesus is like, I'm him. Messiah, I'm him. That's me. Now, just consider... Jesus, this, this far in his ministry, has disclosed to no one specifically that he's the Messiah. John the Baptist knows, but not because Jesus told him. 
Jesus hasn't even told his own disciples that he's the Messiah. So the first person that Jesus is going to disclose specifically that he is the Christ, he is the one that you've been waiting for, that he's the Messiah, is a, is a half-blood Samaritan woman at a well that even her own village doesn't like and has had five failed marriages and is living with a guy. That's the one he chooses. And he chooses them so that you and I and everyone else who has come after, who opens up the scripture, will know that I don't care how far you've run, I don't care what you've done. I don't know where you've been. I don't care where you've been. You will not outrun my love. You will not outrun the invitation that Jesus has for you. And you will not outrun the call that he put on you. Because when Jesus decides to save you, he's going to save you. Sometimes kicking and screaming. Amen? So it's intentional that he's waited this long to disclose that he's the Messiah and that he chose to do it here. Just then, verse 27, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away to town. Okay. Disciples come back with the food. When they get back, she just takes off. At this point in the story, he has engaged her six different times with this invitation to living water. And she has deflected him every single time. At no point in this conversation does it ever look like she wants to surrender to Jesus, that she's interested in Jesus, that she, has, that she cares at all that he's trying to engage her other than to deflect him. And then, as soon as she has an opportunity, she runs away. So you and I would say, I don't think she been saved. I don't think she knows Christ. I, I, she's, nothing happened here. Jesus got thwarted. She ran away. Verse 28, so the woman left her water jar, went away into town and said to the people, so she runs back to town. Who's in town? It's a small town. You know about small towns, right? <sighs> Y'all ever been to Taft? She runs to the people that have ostracized her. She, she runs to the people who have made her life a living hell. It was bad enough that she's had five failed marriages. It was bad enough that she's likely been sexually abused, emotionally abused. But what's worse is that the community didn't rally around her to walk with her. They've ostracized her. She hears their words, whether they were whispered or they were overt. She's called whore. They want nothing to do with her. That's who she's running back to. She's running back to those people to say, verse 29, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Somewhere between the well and the town, her life changed. Somewhere between the well and the town, she went from dead to alive. Because that's what Jesus does. You didn't decide to be saved. You didn't suddenly become spiritually interested. You didn't suddenly decide to seek God. You were dead in a grave, and dead people don't make decisions. And Jesus reached down into that grave for you and for I, and he pulled you out, and he put a new heart in you, and he made you alive. And he's done that for this woman through all the defense, through all the deflection, through all the running around and excuses, somewhere between the well and the town, she became alive. 
Here's the thing. When you begin to taste of the goodness of Christ, when you begin to taste of the water that he's trying to explain here, you can't help but tell people about it. You can't help but tell people about it. Evangelism is not about you having some, some checklist of things that you've got to run around and tell other people about or else you'll get in trouble or you won't earn enough. Evangelism is that you have experienced something that's so life-changing, so fundamentally different in your life that you can't stop talking about it. And, and, and if you could stop talking about it, I'm not sure you fully understand who Jesus is and what he's done for you yet. Because you can't stop talking about your hobbies. I've met you. If I hear another Taylor Swift song, I swear. <laughs> the thing that you really love that captures your heart, you talk about. You talk about your kids because you love them. You talk about your relationship when you're dating because, oh my God, you're totally in love. Take it off the phone. You talk about your, the sports team or, or the hobby or the, I don't care what it is, but the thing that, that captivates your heart, you talk about when Jesus comes in and changes you, it's unlike any hobby. Because you'll never be thirsty again. It's a living water that's welling up to everlasting life in you. She can't help it. She's got to talk about it. Jesus captured her heart at the well. Not through articulate words or sly dealings or anything magical or mystical, but through his power, his supernatural might, he spoke that's the same Jesus that spoke the world into creation. It's the same Jesus that holds everything in order by the power of his word. He spoke. The one who created you and me. The one who knows us so intimately because he crafted us together. He knit us together in our mother's womb. The one who knows us so well that he knows the number of hairs on our head. The one that knows you better than you know yourself. And when he speaks, dead things come alive. He turns graves into gardens, mourning into dancing, beauty for ashes. He turns shame into glory. This woman, this woman who is hiding from her past, abused by her past, reminded of her past, doesn't want to talk about her past, can't stop talking about Jesus, knows everything she ever did, goes back, tells the whole town about it, then tells John about it so he can write it down so we can read about it for thousands of years. That's turning shame into glory. That's what Jesus does when you encounter him. I love this story, and I love it so much because, man, I'm not the hero. I'm the person at the well. I was lost in my sin. Dead. Dead people don't even make decisions. Rudderless. And he spoke and that changed everything. I hadn't just failed five times. 5,000 times. It didn't matter. It didn't matter how many chances you gave me. I was still dead. And it changed everything. Verse 31, meanwhile, I love the mean, meanwhile, meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat, because they had gone to get food for him, right? I mean, if you go get food for someone, you kind of expect them to eat it. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. The disciples, ever literal, said to one another, has anyone brought him food to eat? Somebody else went and got, what? 
Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish the work. Okay, there's a debate sometimes, maybe in our minds, maybe it's not even uh, out loud, but there's, is, is, is being a Christian primarily about this, this relationship with God that we get to enjoy, or is it primarily about obeying the things that he left for us to do? So for instance, you know, you turn to the story of Mary and Martha where Jesus is there and Martha's running around as a bunch of people to feed and there's all kinds of things to get done and Mary's sitting there like just loving on Jesus and loving being around him and Martha gets pretty ticked off and she's like, Joe, Jesus, tell my sister to come help. I mean, there's a lot to do here. And he's like, she has chosen the better portion. Wait, what? But then you read Luke 12 that Mark was reading today, and it's like, Jesus left you with these resources, and you better do something with it. And if you don't do something with these resources, man, he's going to come back, and he's going to find you slacking, and you're like, oh! So, so is, it, is it that I'm supposed to cherish and enjoy the relationship, or is it that I'm supposed to obey and do the things? Yes! Yes! The answer is yes! Not one or the other. And if you only do one or the other, we're going to have a really great, it's not going to work. If you're only about, man, I'm going to, I'm going to cherish Jesus. I'm going to love Jesus. And I'm going to sit in my little, I'm going to sit in my house and I'm not going to, I'm not going to engage in the body of Christ with other believers. Cause man, they're really messy and I've been hurt before and I don't like doing that. And that's a lot of effort and work. And let's be frank. Sometimes some of you smell. And so being real. So I'm just going to be solo Christian and all I need is me and Jesus, man. Me and Jesus is going to be awesome. And I'm be like Rambo Christian just running around like that does not work at all. In fact, even, even in the body of, of believers, even if you have a little church and you're like, you know what? The world's really broken and distorted and fallen and sinful. So what we're going to do is we're going to build like a holy wall around here, right? You ever seen the Vatican? I got to go to Rome. Those walls of the Vatican, they're like 35 feet tall. Like, we better keep these Romans out. And you try to do that, and it's just you in this little bubble, and you're going to miss it. You get nothing done that he called you here. It's the most self-centered, selfish thing you could do. But if you go the opposite way and you're like, listen, this life is about obedience. And so we're going we're gonna to make sure we do this. And I've got check boxes for this. And I don't want to get too unholy for this. And I'm going to, oh, I got all this stuff that I got to get done. And, and there's empty relationship. I don't even feel joy. I don't feel contentment. I don't feel satisfaction. I'm too busy. Or you've missed it. Christian life is one where you've encountered Jesus and he has changed everything and it is welling up inside you to such an extent that you couldn't not do it. What else would I do? What else would I talk about? Everything else seems like useless, depressing compared to this. This lasts. This matters. Have I told you what he's done for me? If you ever come here and you're tired that I'm talking about the gospel, sorry, it's what we're doing next week too. Changed everything. It's not one or the other. And Jesus is like, listen, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish the work. How could I not? Verse 35. He's addressing the disciples. He's trying to teach them here. Do not, do you not say there are yet four months? Okay, so four months is the average time between planting and harvesting based on the stuff that they would grow there, right? Do not say there's, there are yet four months. Then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. 
When he says, look up at the fields, they're already white for harvest. Now here's what's kind of weird, right? Because he uses lots of agricultural and farming references in the New Testament so they would understand. The problem is they, they primarily only planted barley and wheat. Neither of those turn white when they're ripe. That's kind of weird. That's why some theologians think that he, he wasn't actually talking about a crop. You see, what was white was Samaritans were known for wearing white. So, so there's some theologians that think that when he gets to this point, he's saying, look up, and there are crowds of people that have come out of the town and started to walk toward the well to find him. And he's looking at his disciples and he's going, look, the fields are white for harvest. You're here for a mission, Christian. Primarily first to enjoy the Lord. But secondly, that it would overflow into and out of your life and into everything around you. You were put on mission, not simply to evangelize, but to live a life in love with Jesus around people who don't know him so that they can know him. And they will know him by your life and your words. You were not left here to huddle until Jesus comes home. You were left here on mission. You've been called an ambassador. You've been called a sojourner. You've been called salt to the earth and a light to a dark world. You were left here to live on mission for Jesus, enjoying him and telling other people why it's so enjoyable. Which means if it ain't enjoyable, we got a problem. And if you're not telling any, anyone about it, we still have a problem. And he's telling his disciples, look, we can make a kingdom difference today. Verse 37, for here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. This is the same uh, general analogy that we, we were talking about Paul using where he, he said, I planted, Apollos watered, but none of us were responsible for the growth. I was God, right? This is an analogy we've seen used and we'll see used later. We have an opportunity to participate in work that has a kingdom impact. That's why we were left here. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there for two days and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. Every follower should desire to see people experience what we get to experience. Should be our heart's desire. Verse 43. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. All right. Reminder, I said there were four things here. We've talked about all four. I gave them to you at the beginning. I'll remind you here at the end of those four takeaways. Number one, God chases us down despite our best efforts to fight him. Amen that he does. Verse, uh, number two, Jesus came to change our life now and in eternity. Number three, a changed life is the gospel message. Evangelism or sharing the gospel starts with God changing your life. If he hasn't changed your life, I'm not sure what you're sharing. <laughs> and number four, every follower should desire to see people experience what we get to experience. I 
We're going to close our service right now. And uh, the elders are going to come up. Our prayer team is going to come up. And I just want to, I want to offer you a couple opportunities. Um, if, if you have never surrendered your life to Jesus, if you have been on the defensive like this woman was with Jesus, and you've been pushing back against Jesus, and you've been pushing back against Jesus, and, and you, you just, he keeps chasing you. I want to tell you that's normal. Welcome. Welcome to the family. He's saving you. The interest that you have in Jesus, you didn't come up with that. He put that in you. He reached down in the grave and he pulled you out of it. He made you alive and he is changing you. And we would love to talk to you about what it looks like to follow him now. And our elders and our prayer team are going to be up here to talk to you about that. Secondly, if you have been running from him, you know him. But man, through a series of maybe poor choices, you have been running from him. It is okay to turn back to Jesus. There are many of us that have had so many shameful moments in our life. And it is the grace of God that we can turn back to Christ and then he welcomes us with open arms. If you need prayer, if you want to make a decision to turn back, we'd love to talk to you and pray for you. And then thirdly, if you've been experiencing this, this life with Jesus as something that is not satisfying, it's not contenting, it's just you trying to grind it out until, I don't know, heaven. I want to tell you that is not what Jesus intended for you. That is not what is described in the Bible. Life with Christ is meant to be the most satisfying, enjoyable contenting experience you've ever experienced. Like so good that you will never be thirsty again. It doesn't mean that your life suddenly gets easy. It doesn't mean the circumstances get better. It doesn't mean there won't be suffering and trials. It means that through it all, you will have such richness in the mercies of Christ that it will be joy and joy overflowing. And if you're not experiencing that, I want to pray for you. Come and pray with us. Let's seek God together and ask that that outpouring of his love would be on your life, that you would really understand what it begins to look like to abide in him and rest in him. I'm gonna pray for us and then you move as the Lord leads you. Father God, thank you so much that you sent your son, that we could encounter him, that he would chase us down, that he would love us so supremely, so richly. And God, that despite our best efforts to fight him and to be his enemy, he would win because he wins. God, I pray for the people that are participating today, engaged in this message, whether they're sitting here or online, God, that as you continue to chase them and transform them, God, that they would be able to put their arms and understanding around what it is to live in your rest and your satisfaction, God, abiding in you, walking with you, enjoying joy everlasting. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. You move as the Lord leads you, church.